0: Inflation has gone down or is going down, according to a report released yesterday. Financial markets were celebrating that a, quote, soft landing, close quote, that avoids a recession has been all but achieved. But is this true? We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable but an imperative necessity. We are very excited to have Professor Richard Wolf join us again for our regular weekly segment, where we talk about the biggest stories related to the economy, the state of the working class, and the crimes of big business. I'm your host, Brian Becker. The Socialist Program brings you content several days a week thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com forward slash the socialist program. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today, if you're not yet. Please welcome Richard Wolf. Richard is the co founder of the organization Democracy at Work, the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System when Capitalism Fells to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Be sure to check out all of his work at rdwolf.com. That's rdwolff.com.
1: Professor Wolf, welcome back. Thank you very much, Brian. Glad to be here.
0: We have contrasting assessments here. Richard and I'm going to ask you about them. One is from the Wall Street Journal and the other is from USB Bank. Very very different assessments of what's actually going on. Here's the headline from the Wall Street Journal. This is of course based on the inflation report yesterday that showed that inflation while still rising has is rising at a slower rate. The headline is cooling inflation likely ends Fed rate hikes mild October prices report unleashes stock and bond rallies. A broad slowdown in inflation continued in October, likely ending the Federal Reserve's historic interest rate increases. And then, you know, Richard, it basically has a pretty rosy picture. We, we made it. We went through inflation. The Fed intervened it brought down through these record number of interest rate hikes brought inflation down things are back on the mend and there was no big recession there was in fact you know employment is still increasing but here's from the USB bank it's completely different 100% different from what the other assessments and analysts are projecting UBS expects the US Federal Reserve to cut interest rates by as much as 2 basis points in 2024. In other words, not going up or slowing down the going up, they're talking about big rate decreases. In its 2024-2026 outlook for the US economy published Monday, the Swiss bank said despite economic resilience through 2023, many of the same headwinds and risks remain. UBS expects disinflation, that means deflation and rising unemployment to weaken economic output in 2024, leading the Federal Open Market Committee to cut rates, quote, first to prevent the national funds rate from becoming increasingly restrictive. Again, we'll ask you to interpret this as inflation falls and later in the year to stem the economic weakening. Now, the language here goes on and on, Richard, and According to the our estimates, spending in the economy looks elevated relative to income, meaning people don't have enough money. Uh, and that was pushed by fiscal stimulus. And then they go and they have this dire warning that the u s. economy and perhaps the global economy is about to go, well, South is one way to put it, a major economic contraction. They are predicting a deflation and a recession in 2024 and in 2025 again nobody has a crystal ball richard but this is a pretty dire forecast compared to some of the others anyway i want to get your take
1: okay let's begin by what the objectives of capitalist economies are and this one is not only that objective but is written into the the rules of what the federal reserve in the united states is supposed to do it is supposed to have two number one objectives. The first one is price stability. That is, neither an inflation nor a deflation. And the second equally important goal is to achieve maximum employment. Okay, by that standard, the Federal Reserve is not only failing now since we don't have stable prices and we don't have maximum employment, but it has continuously failed for most of its history, certainly for the last 25 years when it has not been able to maintain price stability or maximum employment. So every time you hear a prediction Of what the Federal Reserve is or isn't going to do, keep in mind that the decisions the Fed actually made and continues to make are not even a 50-50 shot at dealing with the problems. The uh, inflation rate announced for yesterday for all goods and services about 3.2 percent increase per year and if you take out the volatile food and energy, it's about 4% per year, okay? The Federal Reserve has said for many years that its target—they gave up on stable prices long ago—its target is 2% inflation per year. So if it's 4% when you take out the volatile elements, that's 100% higher than what the Federal Reserve has been telling us is its target. Why am I telling you this? Because we still have an inflation. We still have an inflation, which, by the way, in a number of items is scary in terms of what it's pointing to. For example, the price of housing, rents, and owning your own home, is going up much faster in the neighborhood of 6 7% per year, as I'm speaking. And that usually means more inflation coming down the road, because if it costs people more and more to live, then that puts extra pressure on what these people demand in the way of income to pay for the higher price of something as basic as housing. So we don't know where prices are going to go. The fact that they've been coming down, or as you correctly put it, have been rising more slowly over recent months, really tells you nothing about what's about to happen. And let me give you a few examples of how that could shake things up. In polite newspeak, what I'm about to describe are called geopolitical events. In simple English, wars. Wars are typically provocations for inflation, because wars tend to be paid for by governments that are afraid to tax their people to fight a war, because if we all have to pay higher taxes to fight wars in Ukraine and in the Middle East, we'd be a lot less likely to support going to war in those places the United States government is borrowing the money to pay for those wars, and that increases the national debt, and that increases the amount of money in circulation, and that pushes inflation up. If the war widens in the Middle East, as half of the world at least believes it will, then the United States will be drawn in even more than the tens of billions the Biden administration is already committing to Middle Eastern warfare, either undertaken by Israel or undertaken by the United States directly and that could worsen the inflation, and the Federal Reserve has to keep that in mind. If the Federal Reserve lowered interest rates, that too is an inflationary provocation. Lower interest rates means that people will borrow more money, more money will be created by the Federal Reserve in all likelihood if that happens, and there again are the sources of inflation so we are not out of the woods. We haven't solved the problem. The rosy predictions for where all of this is going should not be taken seriously at all. And let me remind everyone, the inflation already behind us has increased prices roughly 20% since the COVID pandemic hit. Over three years, roughly 20%. If you're not earning more, 20% more, than you did in 2020, you have fallen behind. You might be interested to note that significant numbers of United Auto Workers union members are voting down the contract that was just agreed to by their leadership. And when they're asked, why are you voting down an agreement that really gave you pretty high increases, the workers are explaining, yes, the contract gave us higher than usual pay increases. But given the inflation of the last three years, and given all the givebacks we gave to Ford, Chrysler, and General Motors back in the crash of 2008 and 9, we are behind with this new contract where we were in comparison, for example, to 2007, the last year before all the recent tragedies hit. The working class, in short, in the United States is falling behind, notwithstanding all the rosy news about inflation not being as bad. Finally, the number one thing this government did, this Democratic Biden government, to deal with this inflation. Which is a failure of the Federal Reserve to give us stable prices. What the Biden administration did was raise interest rates, working with Mr. Powell at the Federal Reserve, raising them further and faster than we have ever done before. Wow. And you know what that did? It made it more expensive to use a credit card, pay for your child's education, or buy a home. And that hurt the working class, these higher interest rates, on top of the damage done to the working class by the inflation. And when interest rates are much higher, as they are now, then companies can't borrow because that's high interest rates, which means they can't use borrowed money to hire people. And guess what? over recent months, the pace of hiring workers has slowed dramatically. That's why institutions like UBS in Switzerland are predicting rough economic times in 2024, because those workers not getting jobs now, as the jobs disappear— will be followed by more workers not getting jobs, who therefore don't have an income, who therefore have to rely on much lower unemployment compensation payments, and that will slow the economy with God knows what kinds of consequences. So you can see we are in the middle of a very difficult, for the mass of people, Not, of course, for the top 10%, but for the mass of people. We're in a very difficult economic position, and nothing is happening to undo that. We are rooting for not so bad an inflation, which means we're saying that the best we can offer the American working class after the last 25 years of difficulty is a slower rate of mounting difficulties than they had last year and the year before. Very weak compensation that is for what they've gone through.
0: Richard, we, we're facing, I would say, multiple intersecting crises. Some of them are caused by capitalism and you know it's kind of regardless of who's in the White House or who's in Congress. And then other issues or other problems, other crises that are based on decisions that are being made by people in the White House or people in Congress or people in the Federal Reserve. And I wanna just frame it that way because next year, next year exactly at this time, there's gonna be an election for the White House, for one third of the Senate, for the entire House of Representatives. Joe Biden's approval rating, well, let's put it this way. The people who think they are doing better than they were in 2021 when Joe Biden took office. That number is 13%, according to surveys conducted in the last week by Financial Times. So 13% of the people in the United States who will be going to the polls in a year say that they're doing better than they were when Biden came in. So that's pretty dismal. And then Biden's approval rating on the economy, generally very bad. His approval rating, based on what's going on In Gaza right now, huge parts of the population, including the growing part, that's the Arab American and Muslim American and South Asian American populations who also vote, they're upset with Biden. It looks bad for Biden. I mean, the fact that Donald Trump, who's facing four criminal trials, is ahead of Biden in the polls says a lot. This week, Biden is going to be meeting with the president of China, Xi Jinping. That's at the APEC summit in San Francisco. Now, this is in the realm of bad decisions or decisions that have a bad outcome, not simply the sort of organic laws of capitalism. Because the Biden administration has pursued a very, very aggressive policy against China, insisting on the decoupling of China, sanctioning of China, Basically, Biden has picked up where Trump left off and continued this policy. Now, here's the New York Times, Richard, for today about the anticipated meeting between Biden and Xi Jinping that's supposed to happen later today, Wednesday. The rise and fall of the world's most successful joint venture. China and the U.S. both gain from their economic integration as they pull apart. Each is finding it will be hard to fully replace the other. For more than a quarter century, the fortunes of the United States and China were fused in a uniquely monumental joint venture. Americans treated China like the mother of all outlet stores, purchasing staggering quantities of low-priced, that would be you know, the things that go against inflation, low-priced factory goods. Major brands exploited China as the ultimate means of cutting costs manufacturing their products in a land where wages were lower and unions are banned. Actually, that part's not true, by the way. As Chinese industry filled American homes with electronics and furniture, factory jobs lifted hundreds of millions of Chinese from poverty. China's leaders used the proceeds of the, of the export juggernaut to buy trillions of dollars of U.S. government bonds keeping America's borrowing costs low and allowing its spending bonanza to continue. And then the article goes on, Richard, to talk about now the countries are coming apart. But why are they coming apart? Why is the US engaged in this very aggressive policy towards China? Why is it decoupling if it's been so great, including giving millions or tens of millions, hundreds of millions of Americans, low-priced goods, et cetera, et cetera, why is it coming apart? It's not because the Chinese Communist Party is promoting world revolution. They're definitely not doing that. They're not even trying to really replace the United States. And yet their growth, which of course, you know by the end of the 18th century, China produced 30% of the world's products. In other words, China was a big economy a couple hundred years ago. Well, it's back. China is back. Again, the US takes that as this existential threat but why should it?
1: Well, that's probably the single most important question of our time and is likely to remain so for the foreseeable future. Every empire in the history of the world has been born, evolved over time, and then passed away. The ancient Greeks, the Romans, the Ottomans, the Persians, I could go on the British Empire, which is in its final gasps of dying away as we speak. And the most recent one, the American Empire, which basically over the last century has been the dominant economic powerhouse in the world, as the British Empire was before that, and so on. Well, we know the American Empire was born in the late 19th, early 20th century, And we know it has evolved over the last hundred years, so that means we have a pretty good idea of what the next step is passing away, dying. I believe, from the evidence I see, that we are already well underway in that process. And it looks at this point as though the next one will be the Chinese Empire. That has to be faced even though Americans have a very hard time facing it, just like the British had a hard time facing the fact that their little small ex-colony, America, outpaced them in the 19th century eventually overtook them, and eventually after that, displaced them to become the new empire as the British Empire faded into a distant memory. It is difficult, and I understand that, for the American people to accept it. Like the British before them, they need to pretend more and more each day that they are what they were when they aren't anymore. And that means the leaders will take risks, big ones, imagining that they are as powerful as they once were. But the reality is we're not. The United States lost the war in Vietnam. It lost the war in Afghanistan. It lost the war in Iraq, and it is in the process of losing the war in Ukraine. This is very troubling, so troubling for Americans that an enormous number of them, right up to the top, pretend it isn't happening, which unfortunately does not make it go away. That's the anxiety about China. It's absolutely correct that China and the United States fueled each other's prosperity over the last 40 years. That is correct. China produced it, and Walmart sold it. China sold to the United States way more than what the United States could sell to China, and China used the accumulated dollars it earned from supplying the United States to lend to the United States government. And please note the ironies of this mutual prosperity. Number one, the United States became the biggest debtor country in the world, by far. And its largest or second largest creditor was the People's Republic of China the Communist Party of China chose to lend hundreds of billions and for some period of time over a trillion dollars to the United States government. And of course, that meant that the United States government had to pay interest on all that borrowing, which meant that every year for the last 25, including right now, the United States government acts as a collection agency, collecting taxes from Americans like you and me, businesses and individuals, and then transmitting, transferring those billions of dollars to Beijing because they have to pay interest on all the loans that the Chinese made. There's an irony for you. And yes, the truth of it is that over those last 30 years, the prosperity in the United States averaged an increase of 2 to 2.5% growth each year in the GDP, the gross domestic product. But over the same years, the average growth of the GDP in China was three times faster in the neighborhood of 6 to 8%. And that's why the Chinese have caught up with the United States. And they are now, especially with their allies, a bigger economic unit. The United States and its allies are the G7 that you read about in the newspapers. China and its allies are the BRICS, B-R-I-C-S, nations that you read about. The BRICS nations currently account for one third, 33%, of the total output of goods and services in the world. Whereas the G7, the U.S. and its allies, Britain, France, Canada, Japan, the U.S. and its allies, the G7, they account for 29% of the world's output against the BRICS 33. It's over the contest. And what you're observing is an American empire slowly, painfully, hesitantly, reluctantly facing up to it. That's why the most important meetings in San Francisco will not be between Mr. Biden and Xi Jinping of China. It will be between Elon Musk and the head of the Citibank and other leading American capitalists begging and pleading to expand their economic activities in China. Why? Because as you pointed out, the wages there are lower, and therefore the chances for capitalists to profit are higher. And the Chinese market Remember, it's a country with four times the population of the United States. And the BRICS, which include India, mean we're talking a much larger unit over there. That market is growing much faster than the U.S. market. And as every graduate of a business program in America learns, you want to be a successful business, Go to where the labor costs are low and the economic growth of your market is high. Well, if you're going to follow that good advice, you're on your way to China. And that is going to shape our politics and our warfares as it is already doing more than any other single factor.
0: Parts of this are organic as you're describing it, the the decline of the empire. Not something new. Empires grow, they develop, they also go through a period of decline, and then eventually they end. There's another thing in terms of how the US empire has evolved in these last decades, and I'm just going to make a final comment and give you then the last word. The US spends, when you do real assessments of how much the US spends each year on the military, you know, officially it's about 900 billion. It's probably closer to 1.5 trillion. There's new studies coming out to demonstrate that that's the real spending, including funds, in other words, for war or so-called defense, that are outside the Defense Department budget. The Chinese military budget is growing, but it's you know it's maybe one-third or even less than that of what the U.S. spends. And again, China has four times as many people. But China has decided to emphasize spending on education in a way that far surpasses the United States. Even though China has, you know, historically been a poor country for the last couple of hundred years, based on current enrollment patterns, the latest studies project that by 2025—in other words, a year from now, or a year and a half—Chinese universities will produce more than 77,000 STEM. PhD graduates per year. STEM is science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, PhD graduates per year. So 77,000 compared to 40,000 in the United States. But a good number of the STEM graduates, PhD students in the United States are also international students, many of them coming from China. So if international students are excluded from the US count of 40,000, The number goes way, way down. And actually, the number of STEM graduates in China in 2025, if you exclude the international students, are three times greater than what is the number graduating from the United States. I mean, when you think about the production of human beings with these kind of skills and knowledge, and you prioritize that, the impact on society is very great. And frankly, it's just not a priority for the United States. Education is not a priority because, you know, when you think about education, basically the government is thinking, well, what does corporate America need to maximize profits, not what does society need? Anyway, these are some really important statistics. We only have about a minute and a half left, but I'll give you the last word.
1: Yeah, let me just introduce a couple more economic realities to help folks understand this. For most of the last three years, when the United States suffered an inflation adding up to about 20%, there was no inflation in China. I mean that literally. Prices stayed roughly the same, going up by less than 1% a year. So an intelligent, open-minded society like the United States confronted with an inflation might have learned by dealing openly with China, what did you do to stop the inflation? And remember how important that is. Chinese goods didn't go up in price, whereas American goods went up in price, as I said, 20%. So the whole world, Americans included, bought fewer American goods and shifted to Chinese goods because one went up in price and the other one didn't. This kind of an reality has to be thought about, otherwise you miss opportunities and the reality of what is unfolding in front of you. It's so astonishing to me that we continue to live in this make-believe world which doesn't look at the economic realities as we face them now. You cannot keep fighting wars around the world. You cannot keep underfunding your education the way you just described, without understanding what the consequences are. China produces these engineers, and guess what? They can match the highest technology the United States has. They have the equivalent of Google, of Alphabet, of Apple, of Intel, No other country can do that. No other country is doing what the Chinese are doing. We could learn from that, or we could play games about who's got the biggest empire. A very strange choice of games to play if the empire you're coming from is the one declining in the face of the rise of the other. We live in a very strange time.
0: I agree, Richard. In that same article that I quoted from the New York Times- The Times reporters and editors, here's how they describe the two countries. Here were two countries separated by the Pacific Ocean, one shaped by freewheeling capitalism and the other ruled by an authoritarian communist party. So here we have the freewheeling capitalist, Richard, who just can't compete with authoritarian China's educational system. I love the language. Anyway, we'll leave it there. Richard Wolf is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Be sure to check out all of his work at rdwolf.com. That's r-d-w-o-l-f-f.com. You're listening to The Socialist Program. We'll be back tomorrow. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News.